Welcome to Transformative Talk, Critical Conversations for Teachers. I'm Dr. Zid Haddad, a professor of instruction within the Department of Interdisciplinary Learning and Teaching at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I teach undergraduate and graduate courses in curriculum and instruction. In short, I teach teachers how to teach and save lives through the use of critical multicultural education as an approach to teaching and learning. Our podcast is produced by a different group of graduate students each week, giving them an opportunity to talk about what they're reading in my class, what they experience in the field, and how that impacts their own lives and understandings. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast from wherever you're listening. Also, you can ask us questions and engage with us further using the Anchor.fm website or the Anchor.fm app on your phone. You can submit questions and you can also send us voice messages. And remember, please share our podcast on all your socials so that we can build our audience. Thanks for listening, and here's today's episode. This is Megan. Austin. Jonathan. Your hosts for this episode of Transformative Talk. In this episode, we are going to talk about critical pedagogy. The way we're going to start with the idea of critical pedagogy is with our own experiences with the word critical. And I think the best way that we talked about doing this is through our identities and who we are, and kind of like our journey with the word critical. So does anybody want to start that idea of our identities and the word critical? Yeah, I can go. Um, This is Jonathan. I um, never discussed anything about critical this, critical that um, at all in class growing up. I didn't even like know what it was until like we started reading it for Dr. Haddad's class. Um, I find it really interesting because like with identity, like it's very suppressed and I didn't like my identity for a long time. So for those of you who are listening, you don't know what I look like, but I am a brown boy. So um, in South Texas, like that's great, but like in all the United States, right? It's not necessarily something that's like super celebrated, I guess, um, in terms of whiteness. So I didn't like myself growing up a lot and we didn't talk about identity politics and I even went to Catholic school which is really interesting because like we talk about like maybe like class or maybe help the poor but we never talked about um, uh, uh, identity a lot so yeah it just took a lot of time to like unpack it and once you do um, you kind of learn to love yourself I don't I don't know if anyone can identify with that in this group but that's kind of my mini story because I can talk on forever and ever and ever ask my therapist and I'll give it to Austin or Megan, whoever wants to talk now. (laughs) I'll go next. Um, Hi everyone, this is Austin. Um, I feel very fortunate to have like learned a lot about critical pedagogy. When I first started teaching, um, I started teaching with a very well-liked organization called Teach for America in rural Arkansas. (laughs) Yes, I make y'all laugh. Um, And we learned a lot about like critical pedagogy and culturally responsive pedagogy when we were teaching. And it made me think with nuance more about like how my identity as a black man, an Asian American man, and like as a person in the LGBT community affects like my students and how that is like a a net positive for them as a math teacher because in my school context 
who is a small town in Arkansas, one of the like stereotypical, like the railroad checks in the middle divides the town with black and white. And so there's just a lot of like, you know, like the quiet part is loud of like racism there. And so it's very meaningful that like I was able to be a math teacher there for them because I was probably one of the few core teachers of color there. So a lot of thinking happening with that. And so I'm thankful that now in this grad program, I'm just like, it's not new. So like, it's not, I don't know, it's not like as mind blowing as it <laughs> was like when I first started teaching, but it's like, oh, I get like this little nugget of information and, and like learning and it's helping me a lot more now because I think a lot of what we learn, what we do as teachers involves the place we're in. And so even though education isn't new for me, teaching in San Antonio is still new for me, like it was for like seven, eight years ago when I moved to the Mississippi Delta and it was new for me there too. Sounds like a lot of growth, like, and then you, get, you really got to see like from different city perspectives, because it sounds like me and Jonathan really haven't traveled too far and oh I'm a city boy (laughs) it's just very different like it's different teaching somewhere where there's like such a very well-known civil rights history and that is very entrenched in like everything that goes on outside and like going into San Antonio where it's like I don't know a lot of like the history here and a lot of like my school itself doesn't have a lot of history because it's a like I work at IDEA and our school was built like 2016 and so like we are the ones writing it as opposed to like there has there have been people here before us and so it's just very it feels very different for me and it it's fun trying to figure it all out. Well that's awesome that's that's crazy I don't know that just kind of blows my mind because I'm thinking about my own life and I'm comparing it and I'm like that would be so different to see from like different states. I grew up on the west side of San Antonio, right? Um, I am Chinese, Latina, and for my entire life up to undergrad, I never said, yes, I'm Latina. That is who I am. That wasn't a good thing. It was always a bad thing. Whenever I went with my dad on the weekends um, because my parents were divorced, I'm very white. I'm a white passing woman, so I don't have to worry about that. But my dad, who is not so white, you can see it. And you can see, you know, different sides of town and what the separation was and the fact that redlining is super prominent here in San Antonio. Like when I would go to my my tia's house on the east side, right? Like to get to St. James, which is, you know, uh, the main street that she lives on you have to cross the mlk bridge it's a literal huge like i think it's like 19 or 20 like um, railroad tracks that separate the east side from everything else and you would go you would go down the the bridge and is everything locked is everything locked right why would why why do you have to do that there but not anywhere else so i never understood that I saw what was going on. I never could put it into words. And because of everything that I had been seeing, I didn't want to say how I am, I'm Latina. No, I wanted to be Chinese. Why? Because that was the good thing. That was stereotypically good. I was considered smart in school. Not 
my friends who were not passing like me. So it wasn't until I got into undergrad that I really saw the word critical for the first time. It was in um, Dr. Prophet's class that she brought in the word critical and she's like, what does this mean? And Dr. Prophet and Dr. Haddad work really closely together. I think she was um, his mentee at the time. And so she brought that what is critical thinking versus thinking critically. Well, we hear about critical thinking, right? We gotta use that higher order thinking. What, what level of Bloom's taxonomy are you using for the kids? And she's like, no, that's not it. That's, that's forget all of that. It's questioning everything, questioning the systems in place. You're given a text to read, you're given a book to give to your students to read. Why is it that book, right? I had never seen myself in a book. I had seen white people in a book, but I, I had never really seen someone of a different color until I went into college. And so my growth kind of was like exponential the second I went into undergrad. And I think that is kind of mind blowing the fact that I went all this time from the west side of San Antonio where there are brown people as a majority. And I never saw what critical was until I was in a place of power and privilege, which is a university setting because my friends didn't have that privilege to go to universities like I I, I, I like how you said that because it's very relatable. Um, and I think that really speaks to the point of this like discussion and the readings that we did because for those of you who don't like, who may have like not heard of critical pedagogy, it's like, yo, let's like break down oppression and identity politics right in the classroom and being an awareness to that so you can empower and unlearn uh, those negative stereotypes. Um, that prevent people from performing how they should, right? And it's very interesting that like all three of us have never heard of that till uh, university or graduate level courses. And that's kind of wild because why aren't we talking about this more if it like has literally been proven um, in research and um, textbooks that we read that like it's effective. And it's not even new research. Right. I think the oldest thing I read was like from like the late 30s early 40s yeah paulo Freire has been around for a while if you don't know who that is look him up because he is a firecracker honestly his writings are really pretty interesting and it's like radical but like you read it and you're just like wow this like why are we talking about this like it's like no tea no shade it's just facts mm -hmm. i yeah it's it i think our experiences with critical pedagogy really stem from like the, the adults in our lives that like because someone wrote in their journal Tracy she said critical pedagogy is a need to become aware of oppression and this need comes from the teacher so if your teacher does not believe that like their act of teaching is an act of social justice for xyz like reason then you probably won't be experiencing that in their classroom or like talk, talking about anything, like having that kind of conversation in the room, like mm -hmm. on a consistent basis won't happen if you don't believe that it's like one, necessary and two, transformative. And I agree to that like a lot because like we're supposed to empower these people. Um, and spoiler, I am not a education major or a teacher. I'm in this, I know it's shocking, right? I 
um, and a social worker student, um, but I really um, interested in education. That's why I'm taking this course. But that's not the point. Um, I I bring that up because in social work, there's an idea of like you're supposed to help your client, right? Like it's not one dimensional. Like the relationship is transactional. So you're supposed to help them and you collaborate to like get to the goals. And I like how this person said in their journal, people make their own history, but not under conditions of their own understanding. And that like students need to know that they'll always be kind of optical at face, but we should never give up. And that like, it helps us grow. So like, we're there to help them no matter what happens. We need to show them that we're like mentors, but like also not this person that's like a boss, right? Like we're not going to be like, oh, you have to do this because I said so. Um, it's because we're here to help. That sounds similar to teaching though, now that you mention it, like teaching isn't transactional. Like good teaching isn't transactional. Right, like they're not our little slaves, right? Exactly. So like if you are a teacher that doesn't, doesn't have any experience with learning about critical pedagogy, then you would probably believe Ray mentions that like children are empty vesicles that need knowledge poured into them as opposed to like teachers and students are co-creators of knowledge and like a like exactly like yeah i didn't i never thought about social work that way until just now so shout out to you see you are a teacher oh thank you i'm honored the club. <laughs> i think we're all form of educators because whether we're teaching somebody something new it it's about math not me if it's about you know <laughs> if it's about english that's me but then going into the realm of, you know, social work, I think that, yeah, it's, it's all interconnected. And it's about the growth of our students and not only the growth of our students, but us as educators and our own growth. Because if we're not learning when we're teaching, there's a disconnect. I agree. Absolutely agree. Something that I thought of before we, we move on is the idea of like, are the teachers that are in the classroom understanding their identities? kind of like how we were talking about ourselves and who we are. Growing up, I only had white teachers. Now I had like Me too. maybe one black teacher in like, but he didn't, he wasn't my teacher and he got the bad kids, which is already a different yeah. issue, which we might have time for that. <laughs> but all I ever wanted to do was be like the white teachers that I had because I saw that they were, you know, so well off. They were, they were smart. They were, you know, they were my role models, which isn't a bad thing because like the teacher who I am still friends with today, like I love her to pieces, but she wasn't a mirror for me. Students need mirrors and windows and that sliding door that kind of shows that you yourself as a black child, as a brown child, as a very colorful child, because you have all of these beautiful races mixed in between, even the white children, all of them coming together should have different colored teachers should have different identities in their room, especially because teachers of color understand and are insiders, whereas white teachers, they can be sympathetic and many of them could be empathetic, but they haven't gone through the situations that some of these students have. Yeah, it's harder for them to get it, I think. Mm -hmm. Which brings the question, which, how do we apply it all in into the classroom? How do we apply it? And I think also thinking about like, intersectionality, having that be like a broad topic in the classroom too. Like in the beginning of the school year, you know the students' names and you know how to pronounce them. You try, even if you fail at it, you're trying. 
because some people can't roll their arms and I will laugh for days at them because it's it's funny because they're trying but it's not there yet I think it's always the effort Mm -hmm. yes as long as you try my kids try to say via oh man Miss Vila, Miss Vila. no it's via try again because I try your name all right well we will be right back after this break enjoy it uh, listen in very well and uh, we'll see you in a few welcome back to this week's transformative talk i'm jonathan i'm megan and austin and we were discussing when we were planning this podcast to how to kind of like make this relatable and we thought it'd be fun to kind of analyze criticality using examples that we've seen our daily in our daily lives and in pop culture so I'm going to out myself right now. And I like anime. People listening, y'all can fight me. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think I'm a weeb or otaku, but you know, I like anime. Um, and some people Same. watch. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, thank you for validating that. Because some people watch weird things, um, cough, cough, big mouth. So if y'all watch that. Um, anyways, um, going to the point that I wanted to bring up, there's this amazing anime called Assassination Classroom. And I think it's really relatable to all you teachers out there. So if you've never seen anime, give this one a, tr- a shot because it's like critical pedagogy like embodiment but I don't think they made it that way but it is because it's this anime about this class it's called e-class and they're like the bottom of the barrel they're in the slums they're those that are ostracized from like society and everyone looks down at them because they're like dumb or whatever right they failed out from their main campus and then we here we have the sensei who's this like well I don't want to spoil it because I won't say what he is but um he like knows everything and he like empowers these kids like discussing their depravity right like oh you guys yes you're at the bottom but what does that mean how do you bounce back from that and like kind of like just like talking about the structures about society in real life and like you know like there's strengths and numbers don't give up on yourself and I really love that about that anime because as teachers I think there's a lot that we can learn from Mr. Crow Sensei. Yeah, and as him being like the head of that classroom, um, he is also very aware of the power structures that go on in the entire school. He's really straight up with the principal and he sees how privileged that man is with the, the son who also attends that school and is in like the A class, which is like the top of the top classes. And, you know, he uses his power for evil, whereas this teacher is using his power and his privilege to help these students, these underdogs. Um, ultimately, you'll have to find out if you watch it. No, yeah, absolutely. And I love that you bring that up because there's this power dynamic, like there's this pushback. We were already talking about how, oh, if you talk about these radical things in classroom, like the principals, like, like, hey, don't talk about that. That's literally what happens in the show. So I think it's a great example. Another example that we identified was RuPaul's Drag Race, actually. So we kind of thought about it in the lens that like RuPaul is the teacher, right? She is empowering all these queens who come from marginalized, they're by default marginalized because LGBT people are seen as outcasts, right? Um, A lot of them have the um, intersectionality of their own identities, like trans or um, being people of color. So they talk about issues like Black Lives Matter, eating disorders, losing family, not being accepted by like family members and what that looks like. So it's not all like playtime on the show, right? It's not just the drama that you might've seen, but RuPaul discussing these things and allowing the queen to kind of empower themselves to be leaders when they go back to wherever they come from. 
because it's not just about winning the money. I think it's about finding out who you are and your talents and, you know, empowering these people to be leaders. I definitely agree. It's really cool that this show over the years has gotten a lot more. I, I, I mean, drag in, in inherently is political. And so if you are, if you become the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race, you, you have a voice and it's very powerful. And I just thought of this right now while you're talking, Jonathan. Simone, for those of y'all who keep up with the show, her, yes, I love her and she's from Arkansas. Um, her drag is, speaks, like has a lot of like imagery of black culture and it's very, it's way more powerful and political than I have seen in like previous seasons. And it's always such a joy to watch her. And so I think it's like twofold the queens have very deep debates and share a lot of vulnerable information in the workroom when they, they get ready. And also they send a similar message when they choose how to, like what their drag is and what their drag right. persona is. Shall we talk about my example? I think you're so excited. Go for it, run with it. So I, if you don't know me, if you know me, you know I watch really terrible reality television. Like life is just like my real job is way too serious to watch serious television. So I, I watch like Housewives and 90 Day Fiance. So let's let's talk about 90 Day Fiance. So for those of you who are new to the show and new to this like concept, so 90 Day Fiance is a show on TLC, and it is about Americans who meet someone abroad and like marry them. And it's called 90 Day Fiance because the visa that they, that the, like, the, pers the person who's not from the United States gets in order to come there is a visa that has a 90 day, like, expiration date. So they have to get married in 90 days for them to be able to stay in the country. And it is just such a great, like, view into how, like, people from different cultures, like, interact with another and, like, are kind of forced to learn about each other, both, like, when you when you're in a relationship with somebody and, and are getting married to them, you have to do a lot of learning. But also like if you are from like the Dominican Republic and moving to rural Georgia, like you, there's a lot of learning that you have to do. And like your spouse also has to learn about your culture as well. And, and some people do a really good job and some people don't. <laughs> so it's just like a really, just a really great show to be on the, to like be a fly on the wall for. <laughs> There's no, unfortunately, there's no, like, teacher aspect of it. Like, no one is, like, being the voice of reason. But a lot of times, like, friends and family are kind of the voice of reason in the show for them, which is really nice. But unfortunately, most of the time, people think, like, the, the foreigner is, like, trying to get a visa, like, trying to get a green card and is going to dump them later, which is very unfortunate. I also think that starts, like, discourse online and on Twitter, especially, like, I see people talking and it goes trending number one and they're talking about like certain situations and I notice certain people that they spend more time on. I've never watched it and I'm an outsider, but I, I see what's trending on the Twitter page because that's what interests me. That's interesting. I, I might have to watch it now. I have to watch it too. It sounds interesting. <laughs> it's so good. It's just like, and it's very mindless too. The episodes are two hours long, which is like kind of a commitment, but the same thing happens every time. And if you like record it and you're not interested in a couple, you can just fast forward. And you're not missing anything. Life hacks. Yeah, life Seriously. hacks. Seriously. Okie dokie. Well, 
I hope the audience listening at home realizes that critical pedagogy, while a serious topic, can also be very fun. On a more serious note, we wanted to explore how critical pedagogy might look like in practice through the lens of a professor in the social work department. What's up, everybody? My name is Jonathan, and welcome back to the Transformative Talk podcast. Our very special guest this week is Derek Plantinga. Derek is part of the faculty here at UTSA in the social work department. He is a licensed clinical social worker, graduate advisor of record, and senior lecturer. It's an honor to have you here, Derek. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I appreciate the introduction there as well. As, as you said, my name is Derek Plantinga. I've been with the, the social work department here at UTSA since 2011. I started as director of field education, and since 2015, I've been in the role of graduate advisor of record for the social work department. So I have the, the opportunity to walk along st- alongside of students as they go through the program and um, to be able to be a part of that advising process, as well as teaching a few of our courses. That's awesome. I would like to just speak on that real quick because I've I've had the honor of having you as a as a teacher and like an advisor, and I that's why I invited you today because I really wanted to hear your perspective on our topic this week in our class. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. So um, our first question here today is: um, Have you heard of critical pedagogy? Yes, absolutely. In fact, it it forms part of how we understand the mission of the social work department. I agree. Um, if, from what we've talked about this week, um, it's very in line with the National Association of Social Work Code of Ethics, right? Yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit more about how critical pedagogy speaks to you and how you use it? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe even to start with just saying kind of how it, um, elaborating a little bit more about how it relates to the social work department in particular, because um, I think it really does, and, and I think those answers are related. So the idea of the social work department, our mission revolves around this idea of transformative, culturally competent practice, and that that kind of um, critical pedagogy is really woven into both of those aspects, in particular, the way that we think about transformative um, uh, social work and the transformative process that we want students to go through as they go through their education. So a lot of it is about really being able to um, to engage in deep learning and to take kind of a critical approach to the content that you're learning, to really engage with it and to question, to push back on things and to look, to, to ask some hard questions so that you're better able to really use that same information in ways that are appropriate, in ways that are helpful and in ways where you're able to then continue to add to that knowledge base. So it's about being transformative in the way that you use the knowledge that you're learning. It's about being transformative in what you'll do with that information. And then um, considering the implications for all kinds of different populations or, or groups that may be impacted by the work that you're doing. Right, absolutely. And I love how you said question. That sounds a lot of like what Paulo Freire has been saying. Are you familiar with him? Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's very much related, absolutely. Yeah, he's awesome, I love him. and. I like how you say these things because you're not just a social worker, you're also an educator. So my question to you is how do you apply that to the classroom? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And honestly, it's one of the things that I most enjoy about teaching is to, to help students to engage with that process because 
I think that we end up more effective, we end up with a deeper understanding, and we end up um, in a better place when we're able to engage in that kind of critical approach to our learning. So what I really enjoy helping students to walk along that path. So for example, um, in social work, we use a lot of theories. So we're, we often use theories because they help us to understand really complex situations. Um, but, but part of the other side of working with theories and doing it from a critical lens is that we have to understand that every theory has limitations. And every theory comes from a particular place with particular assumptions or particular, you know, there were people that created this theory or that came up with this idea. And so to push back against some of the boundaries of that and really look at where is this really applicable? What are, what are the limitations of it? What, what's the evidence to support this particular theory? And even thinking in terms of the values. So looking at, you know, what are the values that this particular theory is, is promoting or, or kind of um, advancing forward? What are the implications of it for the people who are going to be touched by this particular theory? So I think all those types of questions are really good ones to, to encourage students to, to start to, um, to use, to engage with, to, 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 to actively be a part of that learning. So it's never about just um, uh, learning facts and regurgitating theory or regurgitating practice or anything along those lines. That only gets you so far. But being able to really actively engage in this critical process allows you to really take that to a, a different kind of level and that's really where I think that the cultural competency piece comes in as well. In our, in our program, we often talk about that as um, learning how to learn about. But it's this lifelong process. We, we never get there. We would never say we're, we're fully culturally competent. It's a process that we're always going through and trying to be able to engage this, we call it a relational dialogical process, where it means it's, it's about that back and forth relationship between um, a person and, and those they're working with or learning from, it's kind of um, this constant dialogue. It's always learning from others, um, taking new things in, into perspective and being able to, to take that kind of adaptation. So in a very practical way, sometimes it's um, critiquing approaches that we might be using and saying, um, you know, how, do, how does this work in this context? Does it work? What does it mean for the people that are involved if we're using this particular approach? Um, so it's asking those kinds of questions and then being able to take a, a critical approach to even, um, you know, uh, examples that we're looking at, or, um, you know, it could be through um, film, it could be through case scenarios, it could be through anything along those lines, being able to take kind of a critical eye towards what's being promoted by this, what, what's kind of the values behind it, um, where's, who's represented, who's not, you know, who's left out and what does that mean for the way that we think about this particular concept. So, so I think it's important when we do application in particular to be able to, to include that kind of critical approach to the application that we're doing. I agree with that. And speaking of application, you, you have mentioned theory quite a lot. How would that differ? Like, what does it look like between, like comparing it between um, the classroom and your private practice experience, or does it look the same? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. Um, I think ultimately we want to be able to merge those two worlds to be able to say that the way that we approach this, this kind of critical thinking approach, we can take it in the classroom as far as how we're engaging with what we're learning. And then we want to take that into the application, whether it be in, in the classroom, in the community, or through our professional practice. 
So as, as practitioners, for example, for us as social workers, and I, I've experienced working as a clinical social worker in, um, as a school social worker and also doing development work. Um, so it's kind of a policy side of things or community building as well as the more clinical side of things. And in both cases, I think that that kind of critical lens is essential for being able to do any kind of uh, culturally responsive, culturally competent, or, or to be able to bring cultural humility into the work that we're doing, to be able to, to see how things are fitting, where we need to adapt, where we need to, to consider the larger context and the larger um, picture of the people that we're working with. So we need to, for example, understand the community that we're working with. If I'm working in a school setting, I need to understand the community around the school, the, the people that are part of the this, this school, the, the culture of that community, the culture of the families involved, um, and then the individual factors that might be at play, um, looking at the broader picture, and then looking at those individual um, kind of intricacies of, of, of each family, each person. So when we do that kind of um, direct practice, it's, it's still taking that kind of mindset. So I might, for example, as social workers, we want to be able to incorporate the use of theories so that we can be intentional in our practice. But it's not just blindly applying a theory. It's understanding that this particular theory might be most appropriate for this setting because of my understanding of the, the full context of what's going on with these individuals or these families or this community. And it might mean that I have to adapt things or it might mean I try something and, and if I'm open to that kind of critical approach, I might see that I really messed up, that this wasn't connecting or that I was unintentionally uh, pushing someone in a direction that wasn't appropriate for them or wasn't really where they were coming from. So it's, it's that kind of humility going into, the, into that context when we apply things and it's, it's a sort of critical humility going into what we're learning as well. So I, I think from both ends, as we gain the knowledge and information and figure out how to absorb that, what to do with that in our own minds, as we reflect on that, and then being able to apply that in real world settings where it then becomes not just that, that knowledge that we've kind of worked through, but it, we, we see what that actually means for people who it's impacting. I agree. There's a lot of wisdom in that. But that also kind of brings me to my last question, actually. I like how you said the word adapt, um, because this past week we had a discussion, actually, on reflecting on the readings. And a lot of our classmates were kind of struggling with how to reconcile critical pedagogy in the classroom setting where there's a lot of resistance. So are there any tips or advice that you'd like to give to our listeners who are in the education system and would like to know how to do it well, I guess, in the classroom? Yeah, I, th I think sometimes it's starting slow. So it's, point, it's being able to use concrete examples and point out discrepancies. So it's, it's helping someone to be able to see the limitations of facts or information or um, theories and to be able to, to kind of um, put it over here in, an, in, in a very kind of... Um, objective sense so that we can all stand around it and look at this particular idea. So then we're work, it's not me against this idea or not me against you. It's us standing around it together and kind of taking a look at it. And it's reflecting on what that might mean. It's asking some different questions. It's asking, it's, it's being willing to um, critique. And that doesn't always mean, critique doesn't always mean tearing something down either. It means, 
understanding it and kind of working with it. So I think starting with some very concrete examples and practicing that kind of um, engagement with the content and then practicing applying it. So I think, I think those two steps are really important to have the conversation around it mm-hmm. and then to practice applying it in whatever the context might be. So for us at social workers, whatever, you know, in, in education, it might be focused on a million different things. But I think that application piece of getting the chance to try it out, I think that's where it starts to make more sense. And that's where we can start to, to feel and, and get a, a clearer picture for what that actually looks like and what that actually means um, to see some of the limitations of this and to take and to see what that kind of um, social constructionism might mean for some of these these ideas to be able to not be too stuck with one way of thinking that we can't really see where another person is coming from or how something might be likely to impact someone who's, who's coming from a different perspective. Right. Um, I appreciate that advice because that kind of sounds like what uh, Dr. Haddad was talking to us about how like you kind of just have to start slowly and wait to see like when it would be a good time to do it and just kind of test the waters here and there when you're comfortable. Yeah, I think so. And it's, and, and to, to, um, and I think it's important to, to clearly frame what's going on. So it's, it's not some mysterious thing. You know, I think it's important to introduce the idea and just and to frame what we're doing as a way of getting a deeper understanding of the content of right. what we're learning and, and how we can use it in a way that's going to be most effective and to do the most good, really. Absolutely. Well, I think we're running out of time here. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Derek? No, I think it's great. I, th- I think it's a wonderful topic. I think that it really does make a difference in um, the, the depth of understanding and, and the ability to apply um, and to do that effectively. Because if we're not engaging in this kind of work or this kind of thinking, then we can put ourselves in situations where we actually do more harm than good without realizing it because we haven't taken that step back to reflect and to really look at some of these different angles and what that might mean. So I, I think it, it's an important process, a powerful one, um, and, a, and a really healthy one. Well, thank you for chiming in and giving us your perspective, Derek. We really appreciate you being here on the Transformative Talk podcast with us. Thank you again for joining, and that wraps up this part of the podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Wow, Jonathan, that was an interesting interview. And that also goes to show that, again, just you're an educator. We're all educators. You know, it doesn't matter really what the background is because the way that you were working in the social work department is really similar to what we're doing here in the education department. It's kind of cool to see. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review whenever you discovered our show. That's all for now, but I'll see you in the next episode of Transformative Talk. Bye. Bye.